There's joy in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Joy in the house of the Lord. Dell and Lisa Krupp, this is your last Sunday with us. Before you go back to Africa, there are missionaries to Africa. Can we pray for Dell and Lisa? Right now, I'm going to pray. God, we pray for Dell and Lisa. They're dear friends. I know Van and I, we love them. We're grateful that you called them to the mission field. We're grateful, God, that they stepped out. I pray for a safe flight there to Africa. And God, use them and their gifts. And thanks, God, that you love them and you're with them. Be with their family and their adult kids as they're back here in the States. Comfort them too. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you guys. God bless you. As we've been plowing through the book of Psalms, it, it's, there's a lot to choose from, 150 chapters. And so I've narrowed it down to six, six chapters out of 150. It's difficult when you look at such a big book and say, what is it, Lord, that you want for us at Grace Community? And so I've, I've, I've been searching and, and praying and seeking the Lord and saying, Lord, what is it that you want us to hear? What is it you want me, your messenger, to hear? What do you want to do in my heart before I give this message? And, and so today we land on this chapter in Psalm. It's Spurgeon, by the way, you might not know that name, but he was a guy a long time ago that would prepare preachers. He had a school that, that pastors would go to, the, the Spurgeon Preaching School. And one of his requirements was you couldn't be a preacher unless you could talk without a microphone. I would have qualified for that. But, but he had some great quotes, great words of wisdom. He says this about this psalm that we're looking at today. This is what he said. He said, it's the easiest to read, but the hardest to learn. 150 psalm. He, he looked at this one here and said, it's the easiest to read and hardest to learn. The author is David. And he narrows it down, I think, to three words. And this is what David is going to tell us. We're going to look at Psalm 131. Don't turn there yet. But this is what he's trying to tell us. God is enough. Wait, amen to that? God is enough. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so long time before you and I were born, this psalmist, this, this boy was a shepherd who was an, appointed to be king, anointed to be king, is sitting in a pasture somewhere on his laptop, and he's writing these words of Psalm 131, and he summarizes by saying, God is enough. Those three words carry great power. And as you and I prepare for the Thanksgiving season, we have much to be thankful for, don't we? As you look back over your life, and maybe this year, and you began to pile up all those answered prayers, how God came through and is coming through. And you begin to look at what he's doing and has done. And you begin to see the goodness of God. It's just layer to layer to layer. And in my 59 years of life, it's just layer to layer to layer to layer, layer, layer of God's goodness. And David tries to sum it up in these three verses. And when you and I begin to take inventory of our God, we soon realize that he is enough. All those times when you wondered if you could go on, all those moments when you were uncertain, all those times you, you, you were expired from a place, all those times when sickness knocked on your door, all those times when the bank account was empty, all those times when sickness came upon you, all those times when those questions and those quandaries and those waiting periods, and you wondered, could, could I, can I get through? And when God brought you through, you and I saw the goodness of God, and he is a good God. And when you and I finally resolve in our hearts that God is enough, life is stripped of the need for more. This week, uh, I had a friend from Hagerstown that comes to see me, us, he tries every few years, D dear friend. 30 years ago, Ann and I packed up everything that we owned, moved from Maryland to 
New Paris, or Winona Lake, Indiana, to go to, what we, go to school and get my master's degree and get an MDiv. We left all of our friends, all of our families, we left every, every relative that we knew because we felt God was calling us and we packed everything up in a 26-foot rider truck. 30 years ago, we were heading on the toll road and I remember just tears running down my face. Josh was nine months old and, and he loved that diesel engine and that rider truck and he blew raspberries the whole way across the, the, the toll road. And Anne in the vehicle behind me in the Toyota, she's weeping, I'm weeping, but we knew we're doing what God wanted us to do. And all we had was five weeks, five weeks of income. We knew we could make it for five weeks and we prayed, God, you got to give me a job. I was a carpenter, I was a home builder and God, you, you, you got to provide. We believe you're calling us out. And I remember four and a half weeks into that, no job, nothing happening. And we're down to half week's wages, wondering how we're going to make it. We didn't have any money in the bank, and, and, but we knew God wanted us there. And I received this call out of nowhere from a guy that I had played basketball with my freshman year in college. And he says, Jim, I hear you're in town. Would you want work? I said, absolutely. He said, I hear you're a carpenter. I said, I am. He said, I have a house in each trimmed out. Go trim this house out. If you trim this house out well, you can join our team and we will build houses together. Now that's pressure, but that's an answer. And God provided. Not only did he provide a job, he provided a truck that I could drive. And this generous friend of ours gave us life insurance and health insurance. And he allowed me to work around my schedule so that, and then work with him. And the whole way through seminary, the two of us built seven homes down in Warsaw, spec homes so that we could make it. God provided. But my friend sent me this picture. It was 27 years ago. Let me just look at this picture. This is, this is the early beginnings of... That's Hannah, and that's uh, Josh, and boy, they're toeheads, aren't they? <laughs> and that's my wife and I, and we, I tell you, what God has done from that picture to today, it's just layer after layer after layer after layer, a layer of goodness and answer, and just answer after answer. He even gave us another incredible son, Isaiah, and, and now our daughter Hannah is pregnant with like goodness and goodness and goodness, and there has never been a moment that God wasn't enough for us. David finds himself tucked away. Think about this for a moment. He was appointed to be king. He was sitting in his high school class, 10th grade. He was like pretty good too. He had his letter jacket on and this guy named Samuel walks into Jerusalem High School and he says, David, is there David here? Yeah, I'm David. He walks up to him, places a hand on him, grabs some oil and anoints him and says, you're going to be the next king of Israel. Can you imagine being in 10th grade and having your letter jacket on, how that might give you a little confidence? You might walk out of that room with a new bounce, huh? But God knew he needed to do something different in David's life before he placed him in the seat. And Psalm 131 is David writing about that 15-year waiting period till he officially became king. What would he say? Grab your Bibles, we'll find out. Psalm 131, Psalm 131, let's read it together. Psalm 131, ask you to stand as we read God's word together out loud. Just three verses, he sums it up. This is David, 15 years of waiting. God's refining, and this is what he says. Just, just three verses, this is like... Ready, read. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. You may have a seat. That's it, that's it. Like, th that, was, that was it. That, that's all we had. I mean, three verses. He sums it up. 
David finds himself when he's writing this no longer in the limelight, but in a waiting season for God to put him in a place that he had promised him. While Saul was on the throne and trying to hunt him down and trying to kill him, David probably had those moments, but Lord, you said I'm king. Why are you allowing this man to chase me down? Why do I have this enemy in my life if you pointed me to be king? Why is this guy trying to kill me? God, are you sure you pointed me to be king? I remember sitting in the class and I remember the oil, man, I still got Mark here. You came, but why am I not the king? And during this period, God is shaping him, refining him, making him into the man that he wants him to be before he gets the spot that God has appointed for him. But God does that with us. This was after the Goliath encounter. This is after he met Saul in a cave, scripture says, he snuck in like a ninja. Saul, the text says, is relieving himself, no explanation needed. He came up and he took a knife and cut the corner of Saul's robe off. He stuck it in his pocket and he snuck back out of the cave. This is during that time. And he stands on the other side of the mountain and says, nah, 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 hey. And Saul's like, whoa, 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 what? But the text says this, that he recognized that God was God and he bowed down. Instead of bringing attention to himself, he acknowledged that God was still his God. So he writes during this account. So picture, if you can, seeing David trying to coin words what God's teaching him, ready that he thanks for the throne, but God says it's not time. Appoint it to that position, but it's not time. And so he says this in verse one. This, this is what he says. Look what he says. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty, Lord. I do not concern myself with great matters, Lord, or things too wonderful for me. Humility moves others to the limelight, doesn't it? That's what David's learning. It's not about me. I'm just a vessel. Like, you could use a donkey. You can use me. Like, that, that's it. Like, if donkeys can talk, I can talk. He's recognizing that it's not because of something special in him. It's because God made him special. And humility moves others to the limelight. It's always tricky to talk about humility. How does one know when they are truly humble? <laughs> so David even says, I'm not proud. But David says, my heart is not proud. I'm not interested in fame. Time spent in the presence of God instead of the presence of men strips us of pride. Amen to that? Pride strips us and destroys us of what God wants us to be. I think David came to grips with a lot of who God wanted him to be while he was in the waiting season. Can you imagine what that had been like, that kind of news? Like daily, he got reminders, you're king, you're king, you're king, you're king. <laughs> Lord, this doesn't look like kingship. I'm out here with sheep and they're stinky and I'm chasing them and they're like, God, this doesn't feel like kingship. Every day he knew he was king and God was refining him in that incredible process. But I believe David learned something about his father God in the waiting time that he couldn't have learned sitting in the seat too soon. I tell people this all the time and those of you parents probably would agree with me, but when I became a dad and a father, my relationship with God the Father changed. Amen to that? And here's why. 
All of a sudden, I began to understand what my role was as a son to a father, and I began to understand how much God loves me. Because the first time you hold your child as a parent, and you got him in your hands, and you look at this baby, and it's like, they're mine. Like, and we created this. We're pretty good, aren't we? Look, look here. And the first time you hold your child and you, you hold them up close and, and the first time you see them achieve something and, and the first time you see them with the jersey, in my case, with brown on the back and you're sitting in the stands like, that's our child. Something happens from a father-child relationship that happens to you with Father God when you become a parent. And, and, and even this week, it, it, it's changing from us. We're in that season. Our daughter Hannah is pregnant. And, and, and so she had a sonogram this week. And it's been a long time since Anna and I looked at a sonogram. A very long time. But Hannah and Johnny sent us this sonogram of this, this baby. It's like, oh, man. And I, I pull my iPhone out and tears running down my face. Like, what the world's wrong with me? Like, just this. But I saw this life, and, and I shared with Hannah this week. We're texting each other. I said, Hannah, it's going to change you. Now that you're a parent, your, your relationship with God the Father is going to be different because now you have a child, and as much as you love that child already that you've never met, God loves you more. <laughs> and then she sent this photo of this hand. The baby is sucking his hand. It's like, oh, man, that is just like, I'm a mess. So like I, She's a mess too, and so we could, we're, we're sending emojis like, well, what's wrong with us? <laughs> but I believe God was teaching David something in the pasture that I'm enough. And he learned something about his father God in the, the waiting time that he would have never learned in his self-dependence too soon. This week I was hunting with Isaiah. He came home and we went up in a tree stand, a deer hunt together. And, and to be quite frank, we climbed up in this large tree stand and we got and we sat down. And, and to be quite honest, I could care less if I've killed a deer, but I've already killed a buck and a doe, so it doesn't matter. So anyhow, but <laughs> I, I'm sitting there. And, but as I'm seated there, I'm just looking over. It's like, that's my 22-year-old son. I get to spend time with him. Like, and I came home and told him, I said, man, life doesn't get any better than this. Why? Because I love him as much as a human could love an individual. And David realized, I believe in this waiting time, that his father, God, loved him in a way that he would have never understood if he hadn't been dependent on him. It's amazing what happens in those moments of time by yourself with God. It's amazing what happens to us as we walk through this journey. And David says this, he said that, that, that God, I'm not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters. It doesn't matter or things too wonderful for me. I believe these 15 years of living in the pasture allowed David to become a better man of God. Humility isn't denying your strengths, it's being honest about your weaknesses. And when everything's going good, when the bank account's good, when you're at the top of the rung in your marketplace, and when your health is good, and when your children are healthy, when they're chasing after Jesus, when everything is good, we don't often see our weaknesses. But humility has a way of stripping us of our strengths and relying more on and dependent upon God. David's choice of wait and slip away gave God the chance to prepare him for the throne. Maybe God's doing that with you right now. 
Maybe you're wondering, God, why not? Why are they getting it? How come they're already there? Maybe, just maybe, if we realize we're depending on him and he's shaping us to be what he wants us to be. David describes humility here in terms of how he looked at his own limitations. He says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. He humbly acknowledges that there are many things in the universe that are far beyond his own abilities to understand. And I would say happy is the man who knows his limits and within those limits does not, does, does the best he can. Sometimes we just need to pull away and remember who we are in Christ. You know, I think so. we have this tendency to forget because we keep seeing media and the, well, look, look what they have and look what they have. They're better. That team's better. And we just need to pull away and remind ourselves the scripture says, tells us in Romans 8, 17 that we are co-heirs with Christ. Everything that Christ has, listen to me, those of us who have trusted in the saving work of Christ, we are co-heirs. We have everything that Jesus has. Amen. Ephesians 1 says we've been purchased and adopted. 1 Peter 1.4 says that, that, that we have inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. The market doesn't have a market on us because Jesus is our answer. Besides, what else is there to prove when you're a child of God? <laughs> David came to grips with this reality sooner than most of us do. I wish I would have learned those things when I was 16 and 17 and 18 and 20 and 54. <laughs> Humility is a right judgment of ourselves. Pride is such a destructive force. It skews our ability to live the way God intends us to live. It makes us self-made men instead of self-dependent men on God. David became more like Jesus in the waiting period. He set the interests of others above himself and he realized that any good thing he would ever do was because of God working through him. So he says, it humbled me. Secondly, he says this, look, he, he, he says three things. This is the second thing. Verse two says, but I calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with his mother. I am like a weaned child. I am content. You see, relying on God's provision calms the restless heart. Do you see the shift in his thinking? He initially was restless, anxious for the throne, ready to do kingly things, but now his weary mind finds peace and confidence in just having a relationship in God alone. David has no reason to selfishly fret, worry, and prop himself up to gain attention anymore. I mean, seriously, think about this dude. This is a dude that the, the radios of that day, he was a top 50 hit because scripture says that Saul complained about him. He wanted him killed. Saul even said, David, he kills 10,000s and they sing about it. And I've only killed thousands. Saul was so upset that he was going to be king that he fretted over the fact that they were singing songs. Can you imagine him walking through the streets and every day he heard, oh, Davy, he's so fine, he's so fine, he blew my mind, hey, Davy. That's all he heard. Now, that could prop you up, couldn't it? But God wanted to give him a waiting season. Maybe you're there now. Maybe something unexpectedly happened in a relation. Maybe you're divorced and you're wondering, how can I make it? And maybe this season, God wants to shape you and refine you so that the best version of you is prepared for who he might have for you next. 
Do you see the shift in his thinking? David has no reason to prop himself up. As he matures in his walk with God, he has time to look back and see that every need of his life was met. Finally, he says, literally, he says, I, I, I honestly, I am like a wean child. And moms, you understand that, don't you? Aren't you glad when your child is finally weaned? Especially if you're nursing him. Amen, we'll keep it there. Amen. <laughs> but there comes a moment, what, where until that happens, what do they do? It's like, feed me, I'm hungry, feed me, I'm hungry, feed me, I'm hungry, feed me, I'm hungry. It's like, okay. They say, finally, you get to a point where you realize, I have been fed. I've been fed daily. And sometimes I've been fed every three hours. Sometimes I've been fed every hour. (laughs) And every moment of my life, God has fed me. And David finally gets to the point, I don't need to worry about what God can do. He's already proven himself. Mom has already proven herself as a mom. I can just rest in calmness and peace because my faith bank is full of ways that God has already come through. He is good on his word. He is a trustworthy God. I don't need to cry out like a baby anymore. My God provides. Amen? Amen. That's what he's saying. He, he's understanding. But I don't believe he would have understood that if he would have been placed in the seat too soon. To be weaned is to have something removed from your life which you thought you couldn't live without. Maybe, just maybe, God has removed something from your life that you thought you couldn't live without and he's teaching you, trust me, trust me, trust me. David says, I've come to a place where the things he thought he had to have He doesn't need anymore, and his soul finds rest in God alone. So how does God do that for us? Well, he makes the things of this world bitter to us. He removes the things one by one on which we depend on besides him. And then he gives us something better, himself. In the end, we find out, as David did here, we no longer need the things we used to think we couldn't do without. Have you ever been to a estate sale? Have you ever gone to your parents' estate sale and you've been responsible to get rid of their stuff? Have you ever seen this stuff? It's like, what am I going to do with this? And so what do you do? You end up with what? You, you bring in this big dumpster. And you set it in the driveway, don't need that, don't need that, don't need that, don't need that. And, and what do you end up, and what do you want? I remember standing at my parents as they were moving, and, and, and mom was being moved into a dementia care center. And I remember standing there and looking at this stuff, and I, I said this to my siblings, I don't even want any of that. I got them. That's enough. Yet somehow we believe that we need all these things to find satisfaction and hope. But listen to me, Jesus is enough. And David is realizing that. You see, when he became king, he was able to look over the kingdom and say, God is enough. So verse three, he he gives this last little nugget of truth. And what does he say? He says, Israel, and I would say, Grace Community, I would say, Jim Brown, put your hope in the Lord. Both today, now, and forevermore. And I would say, we have all we could possibly want or need in God alone. 
One of my hopes as a pastor, and I did this before I became a pastor, and I, I told people about Jesus before I get paid to do it. Sometimes I think, I get paid to tell people about Jesus. Man, that's good. <laughs> but I did this. I, 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 I'm a dealer. Maybe you didn't know that, but I am. But I'm a hope dealer. And my hope has been that I instill hope in Christ so that people think they need other dealers' junk. They go to Jesus instead because he is much more than that junk they're trying to deal you. True contentment isn't found in a person, David knew. True contentment wasn't found in a pursuit, David found out. True contentment isn't found in a possession. David surely found that in the desert, in the pasture. It's only found in Jesus. But let me just say it this way. Maybe this will help you understand this. Too many people are furiously trying to build a Babel when they could be vacationing in Eden. (laughs) Do you understand what I wrote there? We're trying to build these things, possess these things, own these things, become these people, climb the ladder, climb, climb. If I can get up there and I can get close to God and be like God and I can have all that, if I can build a Babel, instead of pulling away, say, don't you know what you got already? You got everything that Christ has is yours. And not only that, your home is heaven. You got heaven coming. That is Eden. Quit worrying about what you don't have and just vacation here a little bit. That's right. right. It is right. Don't talk to me because I'll really get going. (laughs) Thank you. David reminds us that true contentment is not found in the throne room of attention, but in the solidary throne room of God. Don't most of us have to learn that the hard way, though? Why? Because we're human. We have desires, and we have a flesh, and we have an old sin nature. Nothing and no one or no thing compares to knowing Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example how we long for more. The story is told about a Jewish man in Hungary who went to his rabbi and complained. He said, life is unbearable. There are nine of us living in one room. What can I do, rabbi? The rabbi answered, take your goat into the room with you. The man was incredulous, the story says, but the rabbi insisted, do as I say and come back in a week. A week later, the man returned looking more distraught than he was the previous week. We can't stand it, he said. The goat is filthy. The rabbi said, go home and let the goat out and come back in a week. A week later, the man returned, radiant, exclaiming, life is beautiful. We enjoy every minute of it now that the goat is out of the house. Sometimes we think it would be better if we had this or owned that or lived here. And the reality is, listen to me, we got enough in Jesus Christ. You say we can be content in him. And David, you see him, he's finding contentment. Another person said this about contentment. It's like the story of the two teardrops floating down the river of life. 
one teardrop said to the other teardrop, who are you? I am the teardrop from a girl who loved a man and lost him. Who are you? I am the teardrop from the girl who got him. (laughs) It's all perspective. Way before you and I were born, thousands of years ago, 4,000 probably, David is reminded that God is enough. One of the enemy's most effective strategies is to try to convince us that we need more than what we have in Christ. He tries to distract us and, and skew our focus just a little and take our eyes off of him and place it on something else. He tries to convince you, if you had that, and if you were in that seat, and if you had that attention, and you owned these, and you could achieve that, and you could have your babble there, and he's trying to convince that all these other things are more than what we have in Christ. Yet, when we find our joy and contentment in Jesus, everything else feels like extra. Doesn't it? Like, when you really pull away and say, I got Jesus. Jesus loves me. He is my savior. Like, that's enough. Like, just take me home today. That's enough. And then when you get something in addition to that from him, it just feels like extra. Like, I don't need that. I don't want that. But God, if you're giving it to me, just like, wow, that's like the cherry and the cream on top of the ice cream. Because Jesus is all we need. When David finally set his foot in the throne room, I believe this is the David we would see. He was pliable. He was soft, he was tender, and he was humble at heart. And only, and always, these qualities can only be shaped in a desert time. Maybe God is refining you right now. Maybe you're in the waiting room of life. Maybe you feel like it's an emergency and they won't take you and they keep passing, calling someone else's name. And you're like, what about that? God said, keep waiting, keep sitting. Just wait, there's something good coming. I'm still refining you. I'm still making you pliable. I am still developing the best version of you. Hold on, I'm good. I'm good on my word. I'm a trustworthy guy. Just keep waiting and depending because there will be a day when you will sit in that throne that I have prepared for you. But you know what happens in that waiting room for many Christians? Here's what happens, you become cynics. And by the way, I think that's an oxymoron, a cynic and a Christian. Cynicism keeps you from believing that the future could be different. Cynicism stunts our ability to grow and learn. Cynics never change the world for Jesus. They just tell you all the reasons why the world can't change. And I'm being very brutally honest. You drive me nuts. David says, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore, and that is enough. Cynicism is the devil's playground. He invites you in, and he begins to challenge everything that you believe about God and what God can do. 
Well, he would have come through by now. I'm surprised he gave that person that job. Why aren't you making as much? How come you haven't received the answer? How come you, you lost this? How come you're sick and they're not? How come they got elevated and you're not? Those are voices from the enemy. And all the while, you're still a child of God and you have everything that Christ has is in you and you are a citizen of heaven and the best is yet to come. See, cynicism keeps you from believing that the future could be different. Hope is Jesus' playground. Cynicism is the devil's playground. Hope is Jesus' playground, and it cannot die when an empty tomb sets at the center of it. There have been all kinds of religions, and by the way, there'll be many, many more. People will pop up and say, believe this. This is who God is. Go this way. And listen, if you study history, and I've studied tons of religions. I've studied tons of cults. I've had hours of study just so I can engage with people, and I've sat with them. And here's what I know about all these religions that have already been developed. If you go to their tomb, the founding father of that religion, there is a tombstone with his name on it. There's a birth date, and there's a death date. And if you were to dig up his coffin and open up, there's still bones there. But if you go to my Savior's tomb, you won't even find it because you know why? Because there aren't any bones there. He's alive and well. That's the difference. So David says, put your hope on the Lord, both now and forevermore. 27 years ago, I showed you that picture. We put our hope in the Lord that we didn't know what the future held. We had no idea where we would end up. In fact, we didn't even try to figure it out for God. We just said, God, we'll go from New York to Florida. We'll go from California to Washington State. We'll even go to Alaska. And if you call us to Hawaii, I'm going. But <laughs> I didn't even try to constrain God. Like, I didn't even want, we didn't even want to say, Lord, this is best for us. We just said, God, we'll go wherever. Lord, we said, here we are, send us. So I was the seminary chaplain down at Grace, and I was going out to get my mail, trying to work full-time, full-time student, full-time dad, full-time husband, and God was providing. And a guy came behind me as I was getting my mail, and he says, hey, Jim, have you found a church yet? I said, man, be honest with you, I hadn't even had a chance to even think about finding a church. I just said, we'll go anywhere. He said, I, there's this church up in Goshen, Indiana. You ever heard of it? Never heard of it. Yeah, it's in the Bible, so it's got to be good. <laughs> it's got milk and honey. <laughs> he said, uh, you, you ought to check that out. He said, um, there's a group of people there that I've been leading worship with on Sunday night, and you ought to check it out. My first gut response was, I'm not checking out. It's like when a guy tells you, I know the girl for you. <laughs> not happening. So I prayed about it, and my wife did too, and I went into our pastoral ministries director, and I walked into this room, and it was Ken Bickle, and I said, hey, Ken, there's this church in Goshen. You know anything about it? He said, yeah, I used to pastor there. <laughs> oh, okay. And so, you know what we did? We made a connection, and Chuck Cheek, who's with us now, and his wife Sandy were part of that first group that loved us. And so I, we wanted to be part of a group of people that love people, and I said, I want to go somewhere. God will go anywhere. Even if it's Goshen, Indiana, I don't have a clue where it's at. We'll go. <laughs> and 
But my wife and I wanted to go to a place that accepted people because if they accepted people, then we could tell them about Jesus. So I decided that for this meeting they were having that I would go and, and so I went, I want them to accept me. If they can't accept me, then how would they accept the community? So I put on my high top Adidas sneaks, a pair of khaki shorts and a polo shirt and put on a ball hat. And I went to this official meeting. And I figured, if you can't accept Jim Brown, then you're not gonna accept your community. And I walked into this room of these godly people. I'll never forget it. And they loved me. And they gave me a fighting chance at 33 years old, never pastored a church before. And they said, a few weeks later, we want you to come and candidate. And they voted unanimously for me to come and be the senior pastor. And so we packed up everything we had six months later. I'll never forget my first Sunday. There were 64 people in the church. Our two kids doubled the children's ministry. <laughs> Dear Sandy Cheek was our Mabel Hub for our kids. That was a long time ago. And so sometimes you walk in here today and you see this. You know why? Because God is good. Amen. I've learned a lot in the 26 years, and what I've learned is this God is enough. Oh God, I pray today that we would get that. I pray that we would understand that you are our living hope. I pray today, God, that we would take time to pause and say, God, what is it that you're teaching me in this waiting time? And that we wouldn't press forward too quickly. I pray that we would become pliable and soft and usable for you and I pray, God, that we would be even willing right now, if you have a complete change of plans for us, and we've, we've orchestrated, and we got our plans in motion, and, and, and God, but if you have something different, that we'd be open to that. But until then, God, let us be reminded of everything that you've done, that you are the living hope, God. Thank you that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.